Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and in today's program, we'll be discussing robots, artificial intelligence, and AI in cinema. First, I'll review and bring analysis to Blade Runner 2049 with Ron Chapman. By servicing the story and the character here, it makes this film feel timely. And it makes it feel like we could talk about it five, ten years from now, and there'll still be something to draw from it besides like, oh, yeah, it looked pretty. Later, Alexandra Bohannon will bring analysis to some of the best and most memorable film scores about films related to robots, artificial intelligence, and AI. Science fiction and Terminator 2 both do this thing where they elevate the discourse about like things that are normally like kind of like schlocky, tropish type stuff. Like it's like, oh, robots, robot killing machines, robot assassins from the future. And closing out the program, special guest and writer-producer Casey Twincher will talk about how to write and produce films with A-plus talent. Then you have to force yourself to write. I write two and a half hours every single day. I work a nine-to-five when I get home, and after my kid goes to bed and after my wife goes to bed, I write from 10 to 12 every night, sometimes one. If I'm really rolling, it'll go to two in the morning. All of this is coming to you on the Cinematic Schematic next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first segment of Silver Screen Soliloquy. Uh, this is go- going to be uh, the segment you can expect uh, every month as part of the, the Cinematropolis' The Cinematic Schematic podcast. And we are, you know, we focus on analysis, but we've got to talk about new movies that come out. Those are the things that inspire us and keep us excited about film. This month, we'll be taking a look at Blade Runner 2049 as a tie into our theme this month, which is robots, androids, and AI in cinema. I am your voice of the Cinematropolis Radio, Caleb Masters, and I'm joined uh, for our special Silver Screen Soliloquy segment, LaRon Chapman. He is the writer-director of the upcoming film You People and a huge cinema lover who I've, I've gotten to know uh, very well over the last several months. LaRon, thank you so much for joining the show and, and being a co-host of the segment. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So uh, happy to have you here again this month at the Cinematropolis. We've been exploring robots, androids, and AI in cinema. And to reflect on many of the themes and ideas present in this month is going to be today's film discussion of Blade Runner 2049. There is an order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. is built on a wall that separates kind tell either side there's no wall you bought a war you're a cop I did your job once I was good at it So Blade Runner 2049 is a film that has been 35 years in the making. According to IMDb, the synopsis reads, A young Blade Runner's discovery of a long-buried secret leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, or as he says in the first one, Deckard, Deckard. (laughs) uh, who's been missing for 30 years. Let's go ahead and just kick things off. 
I don't think we can really talk about Blade Runner 2049 properly without at least acknowledging the original 1982 Blade Runner, which has become something of a cult hit in the years since. So, Laurent, I would love to get your take and, and get a feel for your thoughts on the first Blade Runner. You know, it's funny. I I enjoy the film. It's not something that I, I appreciate its uh, place in cinematic history. Um, and I maybe it may just be because I saw it so so much later. Obviously, I wasn't born in the, in the 80s. Um, but it it has um, some interesting ideas that I think are fleshed out really well in the new one um, that they kind of only only kind of scratch the surface on maybe because of the time because of the you know the limitations technologically but um i still think that uh you know it's one of those cult classics that i'm glad exists you know um and i'm also glad that there's something that that was there was a place where we could expand upon that in 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 later years but yeah i completely agree the the world of blade runner was probably more fascinating than actual story in Blade right. Runner. But Blade Runner's a, a fine story. It's really it's I've got a really weird relationship. It's it's a film that I admire a lot more than I like. Now I, I did rewatch the final cut before going to see Blade Runner twenty forty nine and it holds up really well. Aesthetically it holds up great. It it is a film that is just rich with analysis i mean we could spend hours just talking about it's the first a great film. technical achievement for oh, it, sure for 1982 sure. yeah. it is mind-blowing yeah. the way they're able to get uh, all that, that that entire cyberpunk world mm-hmm. that would take so much cgi today right. was all done on practical sets like it is an artistic achievement it flopped uh, much like blade runner 2049 it flopped when it came out yeah it didn't it flopped was probably a strong word it did not make very much money right and no one really understood the movie yeah. like it it was one of those People went and saw it, probably expecting another Indiana Jones or Star Wars, and obviously right. this is a much different animal. It's kind of ahead of its time. I kind of compare it to like the life that the Fifth Element had. You know, like when it came out in theaters, you know, everyone was like, "This is really weird. This is unusual," and they would think it was just ahead of its time. And now we look at that and we reflect on it and think about just how how well it does, in fact, hold up. How well does those you know those ideas hold up, and it still looks great. And it's just the kind of thing where like someone took a chance on a studio film about a concept or or a world this kind of world building that wasn't you know prevalent you know in mainstream hollywood films at the time and so which is why i think the sequel services it really well now because we're kind of in that balance where we can do that a little bit more um, on bigger scales yeah most definitely i i definitely think blade runner 2049 is a huge expansion and continuation of Blade Runner's themes. Yeah. Blade Runner had a lot of themes there. There's the, the big key central one being what does it mean to be human as creators? What does the thing we create tell us about who we are? Right. And also, if you want to expand that even further, what do we tell ourselves about God, the guy, the thing, right. the person right. being that made us, right? Like, it's it, there's a really fascinating idea. I think uh, it works really, really well in the first film upon rewatching mm-hmm. that we do, we definitely expand on here. But the, the thing, my biggest takeaway from rewatching that the new film is I'm convinced this time more than ever that Roy Batty is actually the protagonist. The, the protagonist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like Deckard's, he's kind of an asshole. There's a really rapey scene in the movie that made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. And depending on which cut of the movie you, you go with, specifically the final cut, it's very implied that he's a replicant who does not realize does he's a replicant. a replicant. Yeah, definitely. The replicant's kind of, there's weird tension because the way the the, the, the final cut plays, it's very clear. I think Ridley Scott is like, oh, Deckard's a replicant. And the other replicants 
are trying to protect themselves, but also kind of have this hesitation of to kill him because he's one of them. Because he's one of them. But he yeah. doesn't realize it, and the audience doesn't quite realize it. So right. there's a really interesting tension there. I mean, we could talk all day about that as well. That's the thing that's beautiful about that film. Right. Also very ripe with analysis. But I guess my big t- key takeaway with the themes with that first film is what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. What does creating something tell us about ourselves? Right. And at right. what point does that thing we create become its own autonomous thing? Right. You know, Because right. there's this really interesting subtext about slavery that I think is definitely present in 2049, even more than right. the, the first film. Let's go ahead and actually move into talking about Blade Runner 2049, because I think, as you said, there's a lot of themes that are able to explore a lot more thoughtfully and a lot more thoroughly mm-hmm. in 2049. Uh, and this... K being of the living walking theme. Mm-hmm. He is a replicant who, uh, spoilers off, by the way, he's a replicant who about halfway through the film, we think, oh snap, he's not a replicant or or he is, but he's the baby. He's like the, 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 the savior. Of- he's the product of two replicants mm-hmm. or a human and a replicant who love each other. It's still kind of ambiguous. Right. Uh, right, right. Well, nice, nice. They actually sidestepped. Uh, somehow they, they sidestepped actually telling us whether or not Deckard was a replicant or not, which I think is pretty great. Yeah, but, that's true. Uh, that we, yeah. Don't, that we don't actually know, no. but we're pretty cl- pretty pretty sure we're, we that it's been established that he is, but it hasn't been but they, said. But they, but they, they leave it ambiguous enough. enough to where you could interpret it a different, way, different way which makes it more interesting right. I think. but either way so he, he's just being and then we find out again in the last at the end of the movie the last like oh no see you're not the you're not the product uh, of the replicants you have been implanted with the memories of the person who is which is really really clever but i think that's uh, it, it, it's really interesting though i think I've seen the film twice, and the second time, that theme shined through a lot more through Jared Leto's character and his mm. massive god complex, talking about how he cre- create angels and mm. how he has, when he's asked if he has any children, he says, I have millions, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's a really interesting idea because if he has these, he has these replicants he's made millions but they're mm-hmm. slaves but they're, they're slaves, all programmed yeah. so are they really children and but obviously they have some form of they develop autonomy <laughs> so i think what does that say about humans mm-hmm. you know uh or jared leto's character wallace that we are so drawn to create slaves mm-hmm. not other when right. we create we, we create things that will serve us yeah. um and then again if you're going back to what i was saying earlier like what does that say about our relationship to our own creator? If we, mm-hmm. if we, if we, if we believe in exactly. that, you know, or if our hypothetical creator, I suppose that is very interesting. Yeah. It, it feels like, I mean, we look at ourselves as obviously the top of the food chain, the most uh, intellectually advanced species, but yeah, I mean, that goes to question the, the unknown of how we are here, how we got here, you know, and whether we ourselves are cogs in a bigger machine that we aren't even privy to or, or just don't know the mechanics of it kind of plays into that, you know, in a different context um, by making the replicants like other than human, but is the same thing working for humanity as it exists now. And that's really interesting. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's really fascinating. So there's a, there's a very interesting, exploration of that theme there i do want to get like get like a, a hot take though uh, and we want to stick more to the analysis perspective but but i do want to hear did you like the movie like what did you think about it oh i hated it no i loved every minute <laughs> of it no i thought um i was really surprised um i got because I, I went in with a kind of um kind of guarded my expectations for it so as to not you know walk out um uh terribly disappointed and i was actually it exceeded my expectations um both like thematically and stylistically i thought it was um very thoughtful um more thoughtful than i could have imagined it was it's weird in saying that it's this big 
scope Hollywood film, but it also just has that artistic merit that kind of keeps it grounded and makes it, even though it's so vast, still feel very intimate, you know, in this big world that they've created. Um, but yes, I, I, I think it will easily be one of my fa- favorite films this year. Yeah. I, you know, when this film got announced, mm-hmm. I was pretty bummed. I'll be like, oh my God, more Lego sequels, more reboots, remakes, and and Ridley Scott's... I mean, I admire a lot of things he, he does, uh, but he's kind of hit or miss these days, and he's coming back to it. I was like, oh, man, no one's asking for a Blade Runner sequel. No right. one really... We, we The first one is a really interesting cultural artifact, and I think that it's the, the cult status is developed because of how artistic it was, and also the, the all the cuts. That's fascinating, but does anyone really want another one? So... But then they're like, okay, and uh, Denny Villeneuve, who brought us Prisoners uh, at the time, I think Prisoners was the a, a big thing I had seen from him, and then later he went on to make Arrival, which is one of my favorite movies of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, Denny Villeneuve is attached as the director, and also it's going to star Ryan Gosling, and yeah, we're bringing back Harrison Ford. I was like, just kind of okay. Interesting elements. Uh, interesting. How are they going to fit uh, together? Yeah. <laughs> well, these are all people I love. I, I, I love. I love, the, yeah. I love and I feel like Denny Villeneuve, this is a perfect fit for him. So all of a sudden, I'm conflicted. I'm like, well, I don't want this, but I kind of want this. So right. I, I kind of with you, though, going into the film, because of that, thinking I did have guarded expectations. Right. I, I said, you know, I just want this to be a good experience that justifies its own existence, which is the way I feel about a lot of these kind of continuations of brands. But what I love about this film is this is a real sequel. This is not mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. a film... You know, it's how you do a sequel. This is how you do a sequel. It's telling a, a new story that continues all the themes we loved about the first one in ways that are really interesting and 35 years later are different as well and more relevant in some ways. So I I just I was it felt fresh and new. I didn't feel like the same way I felt about, you know, Indiana Jones or or Star Wars for example. But right. I mean, and even Star Wars I would say is is a The Force Awakens is mm-hmm. a is a decent movie. I like it, but it was rehashing things we'd already the nostalgic seen. aspect and this I, I don't feel like I mean like it's inherently nostalgic because it's a sequel to something that was made, you know, you know, decades ago. The aesthetic, I think, is the most nostalgic part of it, right? But how it's executed, how the story is being told, is just—it's richer, it's deeper, um, and um, and, it, and and again, more expansive on what I think they were trying to do with the first one. Um, and it's like somebody took what we loved about the first one and found a way to, you know, to broaden it. To and to make it more in depth, you know. I mean, the movie didn't make a lot of money at the box office, but it really, in a lot of ways, while it was telling a very complete beginning, middle, and end story that felt very much of its own thing, I, I think it also sets up that world to be further explored in, in, in sequels or comics or video. Like it felt like we we had just stepped into this much much larger world that feels so lived in and there's so many moving pieces and even Wallace who you know I had well, the second time I saw it I saw it with the friends that's kind of a hanging thread I was like well no he served the role he needed to in that movie and at the end of the day he's not like the the, the villain you kill at the end of the movie he's a guy who exists in this world who is this big mogul who right. has all this power so there are probably other stories with different people and in their interactions with him that's you true. Know, it, it feels like uh, there could be infinite stories told in right. this world and that's what's brilliant about it and we may never see any of those stories but the fact that they were able to craft such a world that felt so lived in and authentic and right. and rich in ideas is 
really an achievement for me. For me, I, my right. opinion is a huge artistic achievement in right. 2017. And they've allowed the the kind of the aesthetic in the world and the this the special effects and what have you to kind of service the plot instead of you know instead of vice versa. Where and where where those things are there, and yes, they're awe-inspiring, and yes, they you know they're they're lush to look at. But they're they're just there in the background, you know. They really focused on character and story here, and that's and that's and that's the the big distinction here. And that's that's it's weird to say that that's a bold move to make for a studio film, but because this could have been, like you said, the new Indiana Jones, and they could have hacked it and made it very like could have had the same story repackaged, repackaged. Okay, hey, Ryan Gosling doesn't know if he's a replicant. He's walking down the streets hunting other replicants. Let's go for action and thrills, and not you know. And, but I feel like by 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 servicing the story and the character here in in that regard, it makes this film have feel timely, and it makes it feel like we could talk about it five ten years from now, and there'll still be something to draw from it besides like oh yeah it looked pretty kind of like how we've done with Avatar you know yeah what I'm yeah oh no yeah definitely like, Avatar the big yeah five right. years later or, it was or, amazing at the moment yeah. but ten years later all you're talking about are the effects not the story you know so right. So yeah, no, I think I think that's actually a great distinction to draw because yes, the aesthetic is beautiful and the world is beautiful, but it really is there to service the story and the characters. Uh, Ryan Gosling's K, or as he, he'll later be known, Joe. I mean, yeah. has a real arc and it has a lot of twists and turns that I, I was not expecting at all. Yeah, I, I mean, and then there's a twist, and then there's a twist about the twist later. <laughs> yeah, uh, and 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 what's great is the way Gosling executes those twists. He he does this is cool collective gosling he isn't he is a replicant he yeah. is a blade runner so he's got to keep it together yeah doesn't have, doesn't emote much but there's that scene where he figures out that the memory in his head actually happened and he believes it's his memory right and he just up until that point calm and collected the whole movie and then he loses it right it's a powerful scene and uh, i remember just like because it's it's a great performance from him too i mean very understated all the way throughout you believe him as the replicant um and and then you believe him as the you know the the product of of of, of birth of two replicants um and then you also can buy into the fact that he might not be one you know right. and he did all of that very subtly and when in and that scene you're referencing when he shouts and screams and just like you said just kind of loses his composure which had been so controlled and so calculated up to that point it's it's very visceral and and kind of scary because um you show he's showing emotion for the first time and the whole time you know if he wasn't you know if he was a replicant that's something you wouldn't see him do right and so then it comes in the question that ethical debate you know what does it mean to be human because mm-hmm. he's showing human qualities he's showing logic he's showing reasoning he's showing um hesitation so um and, that and he, at the end of the day he ends up yes he just ends up being a replicant like I right. mean, but that's the, that's is. the interesting fascination we spent this whole time exploring what does it mean to be a replicant and how do they develop and they actually have human things and what, what are the implications of humans creating something that could be just as good as humans and there's a great line at towards in the film for when they when they meet the you know rebels who are going to uprise rise up who says we are the next step in evolution 
And you know, I you know that's like kind of a cliche we've heard in a lot of movies, but like the way in this universe in this context, I was like, oh dang, yeah, yeah, robots having babies together. That's like what what separates them from us anymore? You right. know, except for they're super strong, they're stronger, they're smarter. You know, yeah. all of these things they 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 can't be controlled. Well, in 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 comparing that to his the relationship that he has with the the computer, you know, um, yeah. the joy, mm-hmm. um, it's. I, I compare it similar because we're saying like, what does it mean to have to be human? But also what does it mean to have a soul? You know, um, that's also explored in, uh, uh, Spike John's is, uh, her. And I think his relationship with his computer is very reminiscent of, of, you know, Joaquin's relationship with Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very real. It's art. It feels it's artificial. We know visually it's artificial because she's not physically there, mm-hmm. but he has an emotional attached relationship to them and he has longing he has feelings of love feelings of desire feelings of needing to be acknowledged needing to be the same kind of human qualities that we have insecurities these things like that why would a replicant possess those qualities and if they do you know um why are they less than us and not equal to us right and, and i i completely agree and it, it's interesting that those are those longings are there from the get-go like when he's off duty like he is even though he's very still calm and collected he still has this love and affection for joy right mm-hmm. like he's and we find out later in the film that joy was a product specifically designed to fulfill the needs of their owner of her owner right, right. and so it's it's really interesting that he has innately mm-hmm. has those desires I mean, it's not made clear if he's programmed with them or not, but innately, those are in, within him. He wants to have be kind of like the go to work. Right. They govern his choices. They govern yes. his, his thinking. They govern the things that he does. They, you know, um, when he's given a hard task to do that requires something that would, on, on a human standpoint, would be morally um, problematic, you know, his hesitation to it is innately human because if he didn't have those qualities that it would just be a job but because he's asked to do something that that is a reflection of his own humanity and you're i think you're you're referencing the scene where he finds out that there is a replicant baby out there somewhere yes yeah and his execute execute it it. and he's asked to execute it by uh his uh chief uh robin wright and that's the first time in the movie where we see that he has enough there to even ask that question like hesitate right. for a second like it's like wait right. this seems kind of right. wrong it has a soul right and she's like well do you have one and he's like no you so know why does it matter it's yeah. like but it does it does to him at least at least internally. Well, the, the fact that he has that notion mm-hmm. says that he does have there's something there there's, there's a something soul there, you there. Know? there's a soul there exactly and what does it mean to have a soul you know i mean and maybe we don't even understand it as humans you know and or we take it for granted but yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Now, I, I do want to t- touch on the use of Deckard in this film. Uh, so Harrison Ford does not show up. And I, the second time I was watching, it, it's over two hours into a two hour and 40 minute film when he right. shows up. And it's... You, you forget he's in, in the movie. Well, that's, that's brilliant. Like, you're not waiting around. It's not like The Force Awakens where you're waiting around for Harrison right. Ford to show up as Han right. Solo. This is the thing. You are you get so invested in Kay's investigation right. and the mystery that you kind right. of forget that, right. I mean... Because, like, the first... I mean, like, maybe... The, I mean, because obviously the way it was advertised, like, you know he's in it. So I'm waiting 
on the um, I'm waiting on the moment, the first 10, 15 minutes or so. But as soon as um, I'm sucked into the world they've created in the in the care, you know, um, at some point you do, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot he was in this movie. And it's just kind of it, you know, and then that just adds another layer of interest because in, in comparison with the other one. But yeah, yeah. no, no, it, exactly. It, it's so it, 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 again, it's a different use of nostalgia. I, I do think there is nostalgia involved again, mostly with the aesthetic, but we're we're using the world that that world that exi- that existed previously. It's been evolved, and also we're exploring a completely different story mm-hmm. involved. And this is like this is like if we took uh, like in Star Wars, if we just found some other dude at the Moss Eisley Pub and followed their story for the whole movie, right? You know, oh yeah, he might entangle some characters we know, but generally, right. this is something totally unrelated in the same world. And I so I think that this is it feels more like an actual successor than a rehash or a reboot, which is great. But Harrison Ford, he's not in it much when he's used he's used to great effect his own kind of grumpy old man stick works really well here it makes a lot of sense because deckard was kind of a grumpy person right uh and also there's a couple of scenes that are deeply emotional now one of the criticisms i've read that's been lobbed by a lot of people the two two main ones i hear are it's boring and slow and i understand that one that one I get, I don't agree with, but I get that. Right. Especially if you're expecting something a little different and you didn't know what you're getting into. But the second one I, don't, I, I just am having a hard time wrapping my head around is that this film is soulless. And I think it's it's the opposite. This is a film. Deeply humanist film. Yeah. Very deeply humanist film. It's not like surface level manipulation, tears and stuff. It is a very thoughtful film that uses... Uh, emotion to great effect and like and, and for me like on the deepest way possible I feel like my soul has just been spoken to right you crack and, and the, the scene between Kay and Deckard in the bar after they've kind of had their big fish fight where, where Deckard's talking about he wouldn't crack like what was the plan he just wouldn't answer the question until eventually he did he's like her name was Rachel and you just like look at, like the despair in his eyes mm-hmm. and then when they were at he started probing about the child he's like you know it was hard I was never supposed to be there sometimes when you love someone you've got to be a stranger the sadness on his mm-hmm. face mm-hmm. says everything right i think you're right too like as far as the as far as the like the pacing whether it's boring or not that's that's just a matter of your own personal taste but then as in regards to it being soulless i agree i mean i i also think that that's unfair in saying that and because there's so the whole film is exploring humanity it's exploring what it means to be human it's exploring um now when you make that the bridge for your, you know, the the insight into these characters, I can see how when you're going in to see an action movie, when that's the key focus, it's interest. It makes it it's interesting. It still is an action film, but it is very deliberately paced the way that it is. I feel like it's an absorbing cumulative effect versus a kind of a shoot 'em up special effects extravaganza. Right. So. And I, I mean, if you're this far the, into the, to our analysis and review here, I'm sure you, you're aware that this is not an action shoot 'em up. I, I think people have the inherent, just because of how the, the reputation Harrison Ford has carried for most of his career and a lot for, I mean, for a lot of us and for me, I'm sure for you too, like he's kind of like your dad. Like you watched yeah. Indiana Jones and <laughs> yeah. Star Wars at a really young age and Air Force One when he got a little older, you know, he's a big action star. Mm-hmm. And even though I think most of his movies, there's a little more than just surface level action. That's right. still kind of the, how we recognize him. Now, a lot of people either haven't seen Blade Runner or forgot about it and realize that that is not a hair, a typical Harrison Ford role. It's not right. an action shoot up. It is a noir mystery. Right. Uh, exploring really deep intricate themes and this this is just a successor of that so yeah. i do wonder if a lot of people went in expecting to get something more like we get with star wars the force awakens right. maybe and that was definitely how it was marketed to some degree but right. i feel like well and i guess it, and it also depends on again again on the viewer because we go into movies with a certain 
like very informed nature because it's something we're passionate about. But if the average moviegoer is, if their only insight into it or interest into it is that trailer they watched during that other film or what have you, and that's their insight into what to expect from the next one, then yeah, I can see how that could be, um, it, how it could, you know, uh, go against their expectations for it. Right, right. So and then it's so it's a bummer that it's not connecting with people because I mean I know we went and saw it the first time together and we were just like this thing's a masterpiece. We love right. this film. Like I don't understand how anyone could walk out, but it was kind of funny. I we said that after the film, but actually on the way out of the theater, there was a lady like no longer than a minute after it ended. There was some lady who just walking us and said, "Thank God that's over." I was like, <laughs> and I just was like. So in shock, I was like, "What? What do you mean? What do you mean? Were you bored? Like, I, I just, you know, was I had just been on this yeah. ride and still kind of deeply emotionally taking in that conclusion, right? Uh, so, but I, you know, come to find out, it's a lot more divided among audiences than than I expected, yeah. and it's it's it bums me out a little bit. But also, I think this is very much a classic Blade Runner experience. Everyone right. went to the theater. Thought they were getting one thing, got something else, mm-hmm. and now there's poor critics loved it. People who are really film savvy love it, but then your average audience it's, hated it. And it's, it's weird. It's the reversal. It's like because the first one came out and they were they were anticipating on seeing, you know, it was ahead of its time there. And now here they've given us exactly what we wanted then, and then the opposite has happened, where the audience is upset and you know for the for the opposite reason this time. Yeah. But, now here's my next, here's kind of like one question I'd love to throw at you to kind of wrap up the conversation. Blade Runner obviously is a cult classic, and the fact the cult classic status, I'm sure, is the only reason this movie got made. Do you think that Blade Runner 2049 will have the same sort of legacy? I do. I think we're seeing these auteur directors coming out, making films that are very uniquely their own, um, and they have something to say that's really meaningful. Now, uh, whether it's it's life will will be immediate, like right now, is it? You know, obviously we're divided on it. But I think anything great, anything great cinematically, any kind of art form that we've mulled over years later have been those movies that everyone wasn't uniformly, you know, in you know, had the same opinion about it. So yeah, I think it will. I don't think it'll be immediate. I think that, you know, 10 years from now, it could be, it could be one of those films that we're, we're referring back to. Like, remember when they made that sequel to Blade Runner, they did it right. You know, one thing that's interesting is it actually is very much a Denny Villeneuve film. Yeah. I, it's something we, we, I guess we, we haven't mentioned that yet because yeah. it is, this feels like a continuation of the guy we saw who, who had done Sicario. He, uh, he did prisoners. He did arrival. And this feels like he was given more money to to play in the sandbox but this is very much like His this movie. feels like a Denny Villeneuve film right. while also feeling like a spectacular right. Blade Runner he film. He took the exoskeleton of the other film and he and he gave it his own directorial flair and it feels and it feels like it still services that same story but it also makes it kind of uniquely his own and and I think that's probably what we needed with this. We didn't need kind of studio executives coming in and kind of tinkering to make this film look like look and feel exactly like the last one. You know, they they gave us enough of what happened and what, you know, was introduced in the last story and they allowed they allowed this person to interpret it their own way. And that's gonna again polarize people, but I think I do think it'll have a shelf life. We can't wrap up the, this talk without talking about Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins. This guy, Holy guys. Hell. This guy is the John Williams of the Academy, <laughs> except for he doesn't actually win anything. Win anything. He, he's been nominated more than twelve times, I believe. Yeah, he's the Peter O'Toole of of uh, yeah. of yeah of cinematographers. His work is usually, while always incredibly stunning, is not 
quite as flashy as the winners. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't get it for this one, it's mesmerizing. I, I, it's, I just I can't look away. Any yeah. single frame of this movie, anyone. Yeah, you could take a still of any shot, even of this the close-ups, movie, and it, it just, would just be gorgeous to stare at. Yeah, yeah, there's no, it's not a wasted image in it, and just like those sun scorched desert sand scenes, like just everything like looks just great the war i mean this has this retro you know vibe to it nothing looks um overproduced or over you know overly the cgi is used to good effect you know it's subtle it's just there and again and and um uh it it's it's complemented by realistic looks it's weird because it's not it's not tech i mean is it similar to the use practical effects i'm not well, obviously, there's a lot of CGI involved, right. but but there's also a lot of things like the giant women, right? right? Like that we right. assume would be CGI. I know that they they projected onto giant fog, right. like to get right. that to get to get that effect. So yeah, there's no way they could have done a lot of this without CGI. But it's just very smart use of CGI right. and using practical sets when they can. Right, and it's weird. It's it, it all the images kind of um, elicit kind of an emotional effect too. It kind of services the tone of the film. Well, it's very moody, like 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 like, like, moody, like, yeah. mo- like the mo- like, not like in the oh it's all over the place. Moody is in like you feel the mood the second right. you walk into a scene just Feeling. because of the way it's shot. It's melancholy. It's very it's meditative. Very introspective. Introspective, yeah. Too the music is its own character, and it's just it's so visceral and so like. Um, it adds a lot of tension throughout the whole story. This is probably my favorite Hans Zimmer score I've heard in quite in a, a while. long time. I, I yeah. mean, because it doesn't feel like he's doing the same. I mean, yes, <laughs> as always, there is a ridiculous use of bass. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of electronics, which he's been pushing pretty hard lately. But I think this is the best use of it. It feels the most fitting. Of it, any feel, it, it, it fits the like inception, probably. Yeah, it, it fits this story. You know, um, I agree with you. Like, it, it can go up and down with with Hans Zimmer. He's a brilliant composer but definitely um over the years been hit and miss but this is this is i feel like this is on the slam dunk but yeah absolutely uh so and i, I guess to kind of wrap up uh, our talk on blader 2049 this is a, a a film that is a proper sequel we've already said it continues everything and yes the aesthetics are certainly a huge part of why we love it but that is the aesthetic all of that the, the score the the cinematography uh the performances the, sets, the Rob, performances robin oh, wright um oh robin we didn't mention robin wright, robin wright. not in it much but she's great man it's a great supporting role yeah and even jared leto i mean you know everyone everyone is kind of operating at the top of their game even in we can't we, and we absolutely can't uh, forget to mention Sylvia Hoax I'm not saying her name wrong this is the this is kind of Jared Leto's main henchman yeah she's a, she's a lady and she is scary she is menacing yeah, yeah. <laughs> no absolutely all, but all of those things are all there to service a very character driven story that is also it's driven by the journey our character on that also happens to do tie directly in with the themes that Denis Villeneuve is interested in exploring here. Right. So for that, I think this is a unique film. I, I agree that this is going to be a film people are going to remember. I don't think the legacy will be quite as cult as the original just because there's not all the different cuts and everything i think this is better than the original film i do too I, it's more cohesive i think i think what you're saying is like when when it came out in 82 again ahead of its time and it it served a very huge technical achievement now we are now aware of what can be done with technology now because we have movies that are just heavily heavily used that to their this is just an, a perfect example of how to implement that technology 
in a way that services your story and isn't just you know to you know to get butts and seats to see pretty pictures you know right yeah the pr- pictures are pretty but the story is better you yeah know, the so. story is better this could have worked on i mean to some degree could have been half the budget i right. mean it would have been tough to showcase a lot of things but it, it without the aesthetic when you when you when you peel it all away mm-hmm. and, and strip it down it's still just a really great, great story. human story, story yeah yeah, exactly. so uh, overall, though, yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously, we've spoiled bo- spoil bomb this film. If you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, make sure to head to your theater and check it out. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably going to be out of the IMAX. It's already, because of the poor mm-hmm. Brock's performance, it's already been removed from a lot of IMAX. I had the fortune of catching it uh, with Laurent the first time and a couple of their mm-hmm. friends in the Dolby Cinema uh, at AMC, which, by the way, those things are amazing. Um, and then the second time I went to IMAX, so I could do a kind of a compare and contrast. And yes, see it on the biggest screen with the best sound, especially the sound. See, sound it, is so important it? It, yeah. it's so important tell all your friends about it like it, it's worth your time it's worth Definitely. your money if you've loved this talk i've got great news you can hear an extended version of this conversation by subscribing to the cinematic schematic on apple Podcasts, google play or any podcast app of your choice so if you've enjoyed this segment make sure to subscribe so you can hear more of laurent and i's thoughts on blade runner 2049 all right laurent where can people keep up with you online if they want to hear you talk more about movies until our next episode yeah you can find me on facebook under my first and last name Leron Chapman and you can also follow my feature film uh, You People um, that should be out next year at facebook.com slash you people movie all right. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at CMastersTalk. That's letter C, Masters Talk, or on Letterboxd at CMasters91. Thank you so much for everyone for tuning into our inaugural segment of Silver Screen Soliloquies as part of the Cinematropolis's The Cinematic Schematic Podcast. Don't go anywhere, folks, because next up we'll be talking with Oklahoma filmmaker and score enthusiast Alexander Bohannon about robots, artificial intelligence, and AI and film scores. on behalf of the Cinematropolis and Planet Thunder Productions. Welcome to Soundtrack, a curated sound analysis and discussion segment on the cinematic schematic on thecinematropolis.com. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and ever since I was reared only on classical music by my music professor father, my love for instrumental and orchestral songs has only grown. And of course, it's grown into soundtracks of all sorts, film, TV, video games. I'm not alone. In fact, I have the editor-in-chief of thecinematropolis.com as my co-host, Sir. Can you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Caleb Masters. I'm bringing the, vo- the voice of the Cinematropolis Radio. Alex, thanks so much for putting this together. Oh, yeah. Music. I'm real glad it's good to be pe- podcasting with you again, Alex. I have, I have missed it dearly. Now that we've fully introduced ourselves, we're going to dive right into our inaugural topic that you probably could have guessed from our intro music. Robots and androids. As you know, a groundbreaking piece of cinema has come out in that of Blade Runner, 2049. And so we wanted to celebrate all things sentiently mechanical and soundtrack 
fantastic on this show segment. Today we're going to talk about three different films that all have robots as important central characters or plot points and just discuss the scores, their tones, their significance, how they can support the movie and just some good old fashioned film analysis. What do you say to that, Caleb? I say I am all in. I am all I love listening just I mean sitting and chilling listening to film scores. How often do we actually get to do this? Not very. <laughs> Not enough. I know. Well, in prepping for this uh, this show segment, so I I asked uh, my partner Zachary, I was like, hey, can I borrow your like Bose headphones? I'm just gonna lay in bed and I'm just gonna absorb. And it was glorious. I haven't done that in years. Like I've wanted to just have the opportunity or the reason, give myself the reason to just lay in bed and listen to movie soundtracks. And now I have a reason to do that. And it's called research for this podcast. It's amazing. (laughs) It wouldn't be a proper radio show if we weren't talking about music, aesthetic, like the really kind of the soul in a lot of ways of a lot of these films that we're talking about today. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question in my mind that we have to do this to do it up. So we started with the top of our show with The Goods. The unimitatable Brad Fidel in his now iconic Terminator 2 theme. For those who may not know, because I didn't before I did some more research, uh, Fidel had some minor success in TV and small films, but his really his first big hit was the Terminator score. I, I mean, and this is like iconic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, this is this is like anytime I think of robots, this is like the iconic dun 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 dun. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's chilling. It's impactful. So the first Terminator film was his breakthrough. Yeah, that way. I mean, basically, that's really what kickstarted his career. Awesome. Yeah. It, wow. I, I mean, that's amazing. Imagine that being I mean, he'd done smaller stuff and some TV and minor films in the in the works. But like that was that was the thing. That was the launch pad, man. Going up from T. I, I created one. I, I made TV shows, and then I made one of the most iconic film scores of all time. Yeah, yeah. In VD. Oh, also, fun fact. Also, I learned for researching. He was also a keyboardist for the band Hall and Oates, and as a Hall and Oates fan, that's really cool. So that was just a fun little tidbit about that composer. Yeah, we're just gonna jump right into our first two segments. I mean, I hope you like Synth Baby because we've got a lot of it. We've got two songs from Brad Fidel's 1991 classic Terminator 2. Uh, We're going to listen to Escape from the Hospital and T-1000, track three. And then we're also, we can't not listen to It's Over, Goodbye, track 20.
All right. Well, Caleb, what did you think about those brain exploding tracks? I got brain exploding, heart exploding too. Oh Absolutely. my god! I I think I need to. I had to stop for a second and t- pull this tissue paper. I mean, <laughs> the whole time I was just thinking like this. It's 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger that last that last line where he says, "There's only one more chip," and I, I just I'm like, no, it's you're this time you're good. You're gonna not lower yourself in the lava. You're gonna be super dad brother yes. friend to John Connor. Yeah, absolutely. You can. It's this mutual relationship where you're both teaching each other life lessons at the same time and you're robo dad at that point he's missing an arm i know (laughs) man that god uh and we can go back to the first one because i have a lot to say about that too yeah absolutely let's i want to go ahead and talk about the second piece we we just came off of because yeah this is really hit this moment really encapsulates what the themes and the character moments that work so well, because what we're doing is we're reflecting on what makes us, what makes us human, because we as viewers and John Connor and Sarah Connor are so attached to this robot is AI, right? But he's, he's, he's shown that he learns and he does in the subtlest ways does have emotions because he does, he is able to show affection for John and Sarah Connor, uh, even though obviously he's still a robot. Like there is that whole like he's got some form of autonomy that that makes him special and unique. And it really has me just walking away from like, man, I mean, yes, we all cry like a baby when the robot fell on the lava. But also like he wasn't just a robot AI you know, killing machine. This was like your best friend, like we like we were just saying. I think one of the things that movie Terminator 2 does best throughout the film as you're on that journey is we start with ooh kill a robot thing but we slowly peel back the layers of okay let's look at the nuances and what the, how this thing's programming works and where's the human element in there because clearly he's not just a robot that kills stuff because that would that's what separates him from the T1000 which we'll talk about in just a moment mm-hmm. but i i think this piece Every time it plays, every time I ball, like it, yeah. I, this was one of my first rated R films. I mean, I saw it. I saw it on TV. Confession, I saw it on TV for the first. Oh time. Oh my god, Caleb, how could you? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, know. I don't think I actually saw the uncut version until like probably my freshman year of, of undergrad. But it was one of those things. Like I, I remember balling, and and this was like this is where science fiction. Can, I mean, obviously, you'd seen, I'd seen Jurassic Park and stuff like that, but this is where I felt like, man, this has me really wrestling with some big philosophical notions. These are the time I didn't realize, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, uh, science fiction and Terminator 2 both do this thing where they elevate the discourse about like things that are normally like kind of like schlocky, tropish type stuff. Like it's like, oh, robots, robot killing machines, robot assassins from the future, future apocalypse, all this stuff. And they elevate it and you get out of it this like touching human story. It's a human story about what the T-800 whenever he learns what it means to be human and like every single little tiny moment the character interactions that just build up the t-800 into this you know amazing interesting being we're gonna go uh to the t-1000 music um escape from the hospital of course a huge action set piece uh with the t-1000 chasing after john connor um so one 
of my favorite things about this particular song is the use of the synth slash MIDI sounds. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it was played through an N64. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> Hyper N64. This was like the definition of 90s music. It, it felt like it, you could take the soundtrack and actually put it in the really condensed uh, N64 cartridge. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it sounds just like like a- immediately when I heard this song, I was like, Goldeneye. Goldeneye for N64. That's right. the way it sounds right. like, you know, the way that the cartridges condensed uh, the material. Um, yeah, it's just really amazing song. And so Fidel said in an interview that he based his Terminator soundtrack, like the first Terminator movie, um, on this dark synth acoustic piano overture that he wrote that he showed to James Cameron and Cameron really liked it. And so I, I just think the use of synth is so fitting um, outside, you know, okay, it's the 80s. It's like basically the 80s. It's like proto 80s because it's 91. So it's still basically the 80s. Yeah. Um, it, you know, allows things to still be mechanical, feeling yet these noises are replacing quote real instruments kind of like how the terminators rose to replace right. you know the, the quote real humans right and the, the um, aspects yeah no that totally fits the themes it, it's it's really it's super perfect because uh this i mean really for me captures goes back to like halloween michael myers serial killer is chasing me music you know the way it escalates and gets more and more intense over time and the way just the imagery of the truck right behind them, you're just oh, like, yeah. oh my gosh. And the way, you know, like it feels like there's this big unstoppable force that you just can't escape that's right behind you. And every, with every escalation in, in the soundtrack, you just feel that tension rise in your heart. Your heart rate goes up and you're like, this is yeah. It. Yeah. And, and this, and also there's like this sense where it feels like a lot of the soundtrack is like, almost like just metal scraping on metal noises like outside you know the the obvious percussiveness of um you know the you know t2 theme and then of course uh that segment in particular just like uh i mean and it's again one of those things of where the soundtrack and the score really fit what's going on screen and i know that's you know the ultimate design of you know a composer is like I am going to fit perfectly and match and emulate the tones, but it's like whenever these things are so perfect that they just elevate the material and they become so iconic. It's not just the performances on screen of Arnold sinking into that molten metal. It's the fact that, you know, we have this just heartbreaking score that undercuts the moment. Like just the fastest way to milk tears out of my eyes is like hearing the music that perfectly captures the emotion of the moment. Right. Right. Again, it's like emotions as felt by a robot. You know what I mean? As yeah. felt by the Terminator as he's oh, taking yeah. off because it's just so like you said it, it is so synthy, which again it, replacing the 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 actual instruments, but the same way that it, Arnold's heart is replaced by his CPU, I guess. You yeah, know? Like, absolutely. It, yeah, I think I think you're right, Alex. That really underscores the <sighs> theme. So, what other good stuff? I mean, I could talk about Terminator Two all day. And- oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of music to put in this segment. Uh, so we have to leave all Arnold in his molten metal and move on. Um, so next, we're probably going to do a pick that you're not quite expecting, Caleb. Ooh, I like surprises. Uh, yeah, because it doesn't immediately spring to mind whenever I just say robots and movies, even if it is have even if it does have robots in space so that's a hint robots in space robots in space okay so care to take care to guess take a guess lost in space no event horizon no uh star trek no i mean Uh, i'm not that obvious (laughs) (laughs) robots in space robots in space uh moon 
dude. I'm getting obscure. No. Oh, but you guessed it. I got it? Moon. What? <laughs> oh my god. I actually wrote my notes with the assumption Caleb would not guess it. Wow. So you get because uh, I actually wrote do I get a bonus star <laughs> in space? <laughs> you do. Uh, cause oh sorry, wrong answer. No, oh. no, he got it. You're you got Duncan Jones's two thousand nine science fiction masterpiece, Moon. Oh God. Yeah. I actually don't remember as, okay, yes, I'm excited. I can't wait to yeah. listen to these. When I first watched Moon, I hadn't yet started my vinyl record collection, but that was the very first soundtrack that I was like oh my God, I have to own this on vinyl, even though I don't have a record player and I don't have any of the stuff that you would need to really play any music on vinyl. Um, but yeah, I was just like, even if I just have it, like, I, of course I want to play it and I'll find a way to play it. But man, that was just the first time like I really was keyed into like, oh, I want to hear this in like a higher fidelity type of type of way. So if you want to hear an interesting contrast between T2 and Moon, um, you, you really can't go any further than this score. Um, in tone, we kind of have this film that's it's centered around an isolated and lonely man on the moon um, who only has his robot companion. Um, it's voiced by Kevin Spacey. In this film, Gertie, voiced by Kevin Spacey, he's not an android or a cyborg, so he's not really trying to pretend to be human, have like human skin. He's like very much this little kind of this Wally looking guy where he's got you know like a, a little led screen that has emoticons on it and he has one giant robot arm you know and so it's kind of an interesting contrast because in this movie he's a, a lot less autonomous but he doesn't make you feel any less because you still by when you watch moon you feel a lot of feelings oh god you feel all the feelings sam rockwell that man that's a great performance uh, absolutely too. And, and again like you said it's I, I, I'm really excited to hear this score again because I don't recall too many of the pieces, but I've only seen it one time. Right, it's right. Been when it first made its big debut on yeah. like streaming services. So Yeah, it, no, it, it's, it was a hot minute for me too, and it was like a, a moment of pure serendipity um, when I was trying to brainstorm movies because, you know, I wanted to pick stuff that wasn't just like, I'm a diehard truckie, but same thing there. So it's like I'm trying to f pick stuff that could be you know, not maybe as talked about as some of the other, I mean, we still did T2, but you cannot talk about Listen, T2. If we're going to pick any, if you're going to pick any big mega blockbuster, yeah. T2 is the T2's one to go, the way to go. On, this, on the topic of Android Absolutely. And AI. So I can't really go much further into this film without dealing with big ass spoilers. So let's listen to our first selection from 2009's Moon soundtrack composed by Clint Mansell. It's the first... Oh shit! Yeah, I Clint didn't realize Mansell. Clint Mansell did this one. Absolutely. I love Clint Mansell. Okay, oh, well yes. you better get your big boy britches on, Caleb, because we're going to listen to the first track, Welcome to Lunar Industries.
So, Caleb, tell me your thoughts on that, and also tell me your thoughts on Clint Mansell, because you had a crazy-ass reaction to that, and I need to hear your thoughts. So, firstly, I mean, as I said, I for- I kind of forgot the score for this movie altogether, and I loved the movie when I saw it, but it's just one of those things, like, it just, I saw it one time. And oh, sure, it's not it, the Terminator soundtrack. Right, like, it's right, the, right. sometimes it's, like, volume, but, it just gets pushed out, you know? the second you played that, I was like, oh my god, I recognize this. This is a, this is a piece, uh, as you said, by Clint Mansell that has been used a lot in commercials uh i want to say like video game commercials commercials, and like i get i got chills oh me too yeah i'm trying there's a commercial for a video game out there might be a halo game i don't know where like everyone i think it's halo everyone's like standing still and like it does like a panorama of all these dudes killing each other wow that sounds awesome i want to say it was halo reach or halo 4 one of those like where they kind of do a panorama of of, like all like they just take a snapshot of a battle sequence yeah and that's that's the music that's playing um and yeah no so uh, the second you put i recognize i'm like chills immediately yeah um, it's awesome it's it a great piece so quit mansell uh is actually darren aronofsky's regular yeah so he's done uh pieces for uh most recently noah he's done uh pieces for some of my, some of my favorite one of my favorite movies of all time the fountain uh really like iconic like if you listen to it, the fountain especially is like tear inducing uh if you want to see yeah, it's kind of like that main central theme he also did um of course requiem for a dream which mm, has got yeah another that's another theme that's that's used in a lot of other other stuff he might not be a john williams or a michael Cicchino, like as far as his name more but i would say his scores are just as iconic uh and in a lot of ways i mean maybe not everyone knows exactly where they've heard these from before but these are pieces that are that, that get lots of exposure you've heard them in commercials you've seen them in probably other movies even or tv shows and it just creates what's really great about him is he creates a distinctly emotional thing uh theme uh where i was i would say terminator incredible theme i am always going to associate that sound i'm going to associate all the, the both of those pieces with very specific moments from the movie sure this and his pieces uh he also did black swan uh his pieces I associate with a very specific emotion. I think that's why they work so well for commercials yeah. too, because they they really hit home like how are you supposed to feel in this moment. And this one, it's kind of like this shit's going down, but it's kind of like you're kind of somber about it at the same time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like this weird weird emotion of like shit's going down. You're kind of somber, but it's also kind of exciting all at the same time. With, yeah. With hence that ex uh, that the escalation you heard there where they start to oh, add more and more sure. sounds. Yeah, and and like that's one reason why I really like this particular piece. Um, this particular piece for me kind of acts as a bit of an overture, like an overture, and kind of it's not as you know typical as like a Bernard Herrmann where you got like this big overture that plays all the ma- major themes for the entire movie in one song, um, you know, and kind of like this musical theater style of uh, format. But it definitely has some of that theme and element about it where um this a lot of those uh, melodies from welcome to lunar industries get repeated a bit and the rest of the score and that's what how you really create a cohesive uh piece of music is creating motifs and other things like that in a song that then get repeated in other song uh songs and so that's one thing that i really like specifically about this piece it really does feel like it's like this is welcome to the world um of this movie and i think it sets the tone beautifully and perfectly uh for this film um one key point that i think is interesting 
is that our central character in Moon isn't a robot. For this film for Moon, uh, the central character is a human. Uh, so we have kind of more of a naturalistic orchestral sound to yeah. it. Even if we have like orchestral sounds being replicated in the Terminator 2 soundtrack, they're still being replicated. In this, we have like more organic sounding instruments. They're not just like MIDI in 64 type noises coming out of like a computer box somewhere yeah it's it's very much orchestral so you have that organic sound uh, again as a comparison to you know synth yeah absolutely and not to say that you know i mean of course we've gotten so far in our technology with synthesizers that we're really good at being able to replicate and capture um these organic sounds human element is very important uh the soul uh, and I'm not even ta- I'm not talking R&B jazz. So I'm talking about like, you know, the, the human element there is what makes music and the arts in general, I would say, really great because there is something that uh, you can't program a computer to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and the irony talking about computers, you know, a lot of the themes and and at least in the Terminator and then, uh, you know, in our last film we're going to talk about um, has to deal with you know, the fear of being replaced um, as as a human being replaced by a machine that can, you know, do so much better than them. So, Caleb, you got to keep your feels prepared for this final movie. Uh-oh. To round out our discussion of soundtracks of films with robots in them, we would be completely wrong by not discussing the 2015 Oscar winner, Ex Machina. Oh, shit. I love Ex Machina so much. I oh, know. my God. Ooh. I'm excited to hear the soundtrack for this. Yeah. That's another one of those. I feel like I loved it, but I, I'm having a hard time recalling any specific moment. Ex Machina is a great way to round out this group of incredibly scored science fiction films. I mean, not only does it examine the questions that the rest of these films ask, like has when has tech gone too far or what does it mean to be human, but it has some nuances in the soundtrack that perfectly reinforce what's going on on screen. Um, so first, we're going to listen to a sliver of track three which is Ava's theme. It's our leading robots theme. Uh, Then we're going to go to track eight, which is called Skin. And so I think one thing I really want us to both pay attention to here is comparing and contrast these themes because definitely we've got some motifs we set up in Ava that we definitely reinforce in Skin, but it, it, it gets different and it gets weird and I like it. So this is 2015's Ex Machina soundtrack by Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow.
So what do you think, Caleb, when you hear those two t- tracks juxtaposed together? Uh, I think it's really beautiful. And the, that little basic, those couple basic notes you hear from the get-go, after, you know, you've heard that whole, like, the whole rumble and the, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's the strings, I'm not really sure, whatever that noise is, the, the humming. Yeah. When you hear those first couple notes, it reminds me of, like, simplicity mm-hmm. and, 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 like, a child, something childlike about it. Cause yeah. Because it's, like, uh, it reminds me of, like, a toddler tune or something like that. Sure, you know? a nursery rhyme or Run, something. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then, obviously, in the second piece, we get that same tune. But it gets more intense and more intense and more intense and more intense and louder and louder and louder sure. until the rumble is actually blowing the speakers out almost. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting because I know, you know, definitely don't adjust your speakers like that. You know, that distortion was intentional by uh, Salisbury and, and Barrow. I, and I think you're completely right, Caleb. You have the juxtaposing of like really simple, like few notes that are like this kind of nursery tune, you know, made with this kind of music box sound. Uh, and then you have some effect that feels like, and I don't know if this is what they sincerely use, but it definitely sounds like you're w- rubbing the top of a wine glass. If yeah. you have like water or liquid right. in it, um, where you have that kind of that ringing noise. And I have no idea that phenomenon of like, why you can play the wine glass but you just can um so you have yeah magic miracles etc uh but so you have that in that first track ava and then you have that contrasting with the um second track skin which i mean just again i always find it interesting when the titles of the tracks themselves kind of um clue you into pieces of what's kind of going on Mm -hmm. in the story um but that second track i mean it it definitely says without you know going into heavy spoilers for this movie, um, things may not be the way they seem. You know, right? If I, things seem simple or maybe childlike um, in their simplicity, um, maybe they're not just purely that. Well, there's a certain like coming into its own. Like there's a growing confidence you hear in that again. That very just just very quiet tone, and then it gets louder and louder, and more and more and more intense. Yeah, and I think it's something about coming into your own in in like becoming self-aware uh, teenage years. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a certain coming. It's really where that movie's in a, in a really weird light. You could spin it as a, a w- kind of coming of age story to some degree too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this piece does a really great job at, at capturing that feeling. Sure. And I mean, of course, no spoilers here. Um, but if you know the film, I mean, it makes complete sense. Like the tone, the tonal shift, not necessarily like the musical tone, uh, but like the thematic shift moves from kind of like a more lighthearted to more serious, um, by the end of the film. Um, and of course that doesn't, uh, come close to, uh, the end of our first segment. Uh, sadly we have to say adieu at some point, but we're going to definitely, uh, leave you in a great place. Uh, we're going to leave you with the last part from the last song of ex machina, which is, which is track number 10. It's Bunsen burner. Um, this song is used during the climax of the movie um, in the hallway. You know what I mean. Uh, you know, that hallway sequence. Yeah, that, I don't have to say anymore. This song is highly mechanical in tone and theme. I mean, it really doesn't sound like a lot of what happens in the rest of the score so far.
So, Caleb, got to hear some of your final thoughts on our track number 10, Bunsen Burner, which you can still hear playing um, underneath our conversation right now. Uh, this is fantastic. I This is one of those, I get ch- another one of those chill, tingling, uh, I can't spoil the movie, but it, it highlights a very climactic moment and like yes. it is scored so flawlessly. The timing with each rise and and, 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 and beat just is, is yeah it, it, it sinks in with the movie it perfectly. sinks with the movie like it kind of it just really emulates um you know of course whenever you're composing you're composing while watching the movie so like of course they are able to pick the certain beats that they're wanting to do but so the way that they were able to sync the complete beats of the movie with the beats of the song it's just beautiful i know you know composers compose whenever they have the movie playing on the screen and then they do their thing uh but again like not a lot of movies these days uh use that kind of intense musical cue to like like yeah you know that's that's a thing especially since this this song in particular is a little less yeah and it's more like very understated um, and actually, one thing I didn't pick up on until listening to this just now, um, not even in my notes, where so the distortion um, we hear in skin uh, at the very end. So that is actually used throughout Bunsen Burner. And I actually like the same like tones of the distortion. Um, I just realized I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. If you know the film, you're following along through Ava's journey um, and how that uh, situation unfolds with Caleb and Nathan, uh, not you, Caleb, but you know, movie. Dom Hogleason, uh, Caleb. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Caleb is played by Dom Hogleason. <laughs> Caleb uh, uh, Weasley, brother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, yeah. No, I think I, I love that you picked the, these three pieces. I really do think it hits the themes of the movie like spot on. Like you have uh, each one gets more, they, there's a growing and growing in confidence uh, until it finally hits a climax. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's our first soundtrack into the world of robots and androids you gotta stay tuned for our next segment you can find me on twitter at alex v brohannon b-r-o-h-a-n-n-o-n you can also find me on instagram at the same handle and as a reminder the movies we used in this podcast was 1991's terminator 2 2009's moon and of course 2015's ex machina and they are oft lauded award winning and uh, need to be seen by you again so please uh check those out at your local i was gonna say at your local blockbuster but i realized that that makes me very <laughs> fucking old uh <laughs> so uh just find those at your local streaming service that's in your computer box right now if you've enjoyed this talk with Alexandra Bohannon and myself, you can hear us talk even more about our favorite film scores regarding AI by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast app. By subscribing, you'll actually get access to an entire extra song and piece of the puzzle for this segment. So I really do highly encourage uh, you subscribing to our podcast. D- don't uh, give up your autonomy yet, humans. The robots aren't going to come and take your livelihoods away. They can't take our music. They can't take our music. Well, we'll see you later next time. But don't hit that pause button just yet. Stay tuned to hear our our final segment of this month's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, where I talk with the writer-producer of Rudderless and The Scent of Rain and Lightning, Casey Twencher, about writing and producing films in Oklahoma at the recent second annual Planet Thunder Brainstorm.
I am very excited to introduce tonight's keynote speaker. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him through work about four months ago. He is a gentleman who has worked on some films you might have heard of uh, back in 2014. He worked on the film uh, Rudderless, which was made uh, right here in Oklahoma City. I think it's shot in Guthrie as well. Uh, uh, as well as a, a, a film that is currently uh, on the film festival circuit that played at Dead Center earlier this year, The Scent of Rain at Lightning. Welcome the man of the hour, Casey Twinter, to the stage. Casey, take a seat. Yes. Casey, thanks so much for coming out tonight, man. Uh, well, you work with me, so if I'd said no, I would have never heard the end of it. You're like, oh no, now I've got to, I've got to, I've got to hear talk with this guy in front of a bunch of people. Uh, well, you know, after four months, I thought it was about time we finally had a talk. So this is true. This is true. No, actually, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate you asking me out here. I like getting to speak to filmmakers and actors and aspiring writers and whatever we call ourselves. Uh, I call myself an aspiring filmmaker still. Okay, very cool. Well, I, I like that you do call yourself an aspiring filmmaker. I think there's a lot of people here in this room tonight who might share that same sentiment, who are working on really great projects now or want to get a start, and uh, really glad all those folks can make it out. And speaking of which, I mean, you've been pretty successful because you, uh, you had a film, uh, you and your writing par- partner, Jeff Robinson, uh, you made the, the Jogger, and then you had an original, I believe, original screenplay for Ruddles, is that correct? Uh, yeah, uh, came up with the idea while I was mowing the lawn. Mowing the lawn, nice. <laughs> So you have an original screenplay, and then recently, or currently actually, The Scent of Rain Lightning is a film that you're on the, the festival circuit with right now, and that is an adapted screenplay. So that's no small feat to be within you know, two films. You're doing original and you're doing adapted material, so that's awesome. We did it because um, we were trying to... Rudderless had gone through its second moment where it fell apart. You know, it was coming together and it fell apart, and we were trying to break into Hollywood as writers, so we wanted to show the skill of being able to take a book to a script, and my wife was, had been reading this book. It was on the um, New York Times bestseller list, barely, and it w- NPR did an article about the most overlooked books of the year, of 2013 or whatever it was, 14. So I read it, I fell in love with it, and reached out to the writer or of, of the book. Actually, re- reached out to the publisher, and the writer happened to live 10 miles from me in Kansas oh. City at the time. So we went to lunch, and I said, hey, how about I option your book for a dollar? <laughs> and... <laughs> There were some other caveats in there, but she said yes, and we wrote it. And um, then after Rudderless was made, about a year after that, we started developing that yeah, as a film. Because you, you basically almost, it was like, you went from one project to another pretty quickly, it seems like. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, though, like you, but you, you didn't get your start making these big films that attracted people like William H. Macy or Maggie Grace. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little, you talk a little bit about how did you get your start? When did you decide you wanted to write screenplays? About 12 years ago, so my writing partner and I met, you know, the way most, you know, duos meet. We met in a fantasy football league. <laughs> this is true. True bromance, for sure. Yes. Um, and then we started talking about movies, and I happened to mention just like, because I've worked on commercials and written commercials and things like that. I, we were talking about little things like recurring jokes in films um, that I just found, you know, really, really funny. And Jeff was like, hey, I, I, you know, I always want to be a filmmaker. So I went ahead and I wrote a screenplay, just a bucket list thing. And he sent it to me and I read it. And he was like, you should try it. And so I did. And it was like, I don't know, I describe it like when somebody, the first time I hear a friend of mine 
who's gone out to play golf and they're like they played golf and they loved it and then like two weeks later they go spend like a thousand dollars on golf shit even though they're terrible (laughs) that was what it was for me so I just started writing and writing and writing like crazy and I thought they were all so good and uh I'm just kind of not a person that goes halfway with something. And Jeff was just like, you know, I scratched an itch, I'm good. You know? And I wrote one and I was like, we are just gonna start submitting these to agents. And he's like, Are you crazy? So we did that for about five or six years with some varied degree of success. Got a really crappy option on one, not a dollar, but not much more than that. And um, then we finally just said, you know what? But the only way we're going to do this is by making our own movie. So that's when we decided to make Rudderless. We decided to make it at a much smaller budget and follow the once model. So I kind of I came up with the idea while mowing the lawn. I was like, because I knew I had friends that were musicians, and some of them are really, really talented people um, that I connect with. And I think that they've got these amazing songs, and it's so shitty that the whole world hasn't got to hear their songs, right? So that thought, and me being a new father and being a relatively dark person, was like, I, what would it be like if you had a kid that was like going to be the next Tom York or John Lennon or something like that, and they were killed before the world ever got to hear their music? <clears throat> so that was the original, the spark of the idea of the dad then carrying on the music. Because I'd, I'd be like, man, I'd probably take those CDs all over the place and just want, ask people to listen to my kids' music. So that's where the idea came from. Called Jeff, was like, I have an idea. I think we could make it for like half a million dollars. We could follow the once model. Every rock star wants to be an actor. Every actor wants to be a rock star. Yeah, that was the, the, the basis of the idea. And we actually had some really big musicians signed on, one of which ended up in the final movie, Ben Queller, um, who ended up playing the bass player in Rudderless. Um, he was going to be Quentin, the star that was um, ultimately played by Anton. Awesome. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, like, what were some of the advantages and disadvantages of making in Oklahoma? So advantages, you actually get to set it, like, right here in your hometown, right? That's really cool. But I'm interested to hear, like, what has that experience been like for you to make it locally? Um, well, other than the few crew people that are here that were a huge pain in my ass. <laughs> I'm kidding, guys. Um, no, I, uh, so... So, you know, there's the rebate that was here. We felt like we could get... I knew a lot of the venue owners at the time of bars and, and things like that. We just thought we could do it for cheaper here. This is really not... The, that's really not the sexiest part of, of, like, why we decided to do it. We just were like, you know, it's going to be a teeny tiny film. We have no budgets. So we might as well shoot it here. No bar owners. That's a bulk of the venues. New abode owner on... Um, Hefner, so felt like we had a lot of the pieces that we could get. Um, yeah, so that's why we did it. I'm glad we did. I mean, we, we um, I mean, the crew base here is great. The crew, the people that work on the film are like de facto family. So when I get to see them, I haven't seen them, some of these people for like a year. And John, and it, it's, uh, I don't know. Feel very blessed to have done it, and um, the talent here is amazing. The producers, the actors, the people that come in from LA are just freaking blown away by the crew, the work ethic, and just the camaraderie. Because, like anything, like any business, or where you got coworkers, where there's kind of internal friction and things like that, movies are high stress, 
<laughs> long hours. <laughs> You're, you don't sleep a lot, so you get cranky. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's just a general tension that, that comes with making a film, and, you know, almost everybody who came in that have worked on bigger productions just would comment on the, the family aspect of the way the crews are here. I mean, sure, there's a little bit of drama. There's always going to be that, but it's just, it's a great place to make a film. I'm going to keep making them if I can. Awesome. Very cool. And yeah, Cinebrite Lightning was also made here as well, so that's very cool. Now, one thing I noticed, uh, you know, I actually, since you said, you know, you agreed to do this, I was like, man, I'm going to go back, and I'd seen Redless before, but I'm like, I'm going to go back and rewatch that, and then you had Scent of Rain and Lightning. Um, I was really excited to see that, uh, you know, before it made the release. And one thing I kind of noticed about a lot of your theme was this theme of regret that kind of runs through, I think, as a through line for a couple of your movies, you know, for, for instance, in Rudderless, you have uh, Billy Crudup, who is, you know, deeply regretful about his relationship with his son, uh, you know, before the shooting. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what sorts of personal places do you go to whenever you're, whenever you're brainstorming or thinking about an idea for a script? Scripts are about raising the stakes as you go through, and um, typically that just takes me to you know, the darker areas of my head and my biggest fears and bringing them to life and things like that. And then the second thing is, for us, it's always kind of about exploring a theme and and scent. But that particular film is about, okay, so it's set up as a mystery. A, a, A woman finds out the man convicted of killing her parents 10 years previously when she was a child, actually 12 years previously when she was a child, has his sentence has been commuted and he's moving back to the small town where she lives. Um, he was the bad guy in town. He was the immediate, he was the first suspect, the obvious choice. But then she realizes perhaps there was more going on and the life that she had led and believed to be um, living wasn't exactly all that she thought it would be. Um, so that's the mystery side of it. But really, and to get back to your question, the interesting thing for me was this idea that no matter, it's this horrible moment in her life, no matter whether she's able to figure it out or not, she's never going to get all of the pieces, and um, and then everybody ha- t- has a moment where they touch the crime, and they regret what they had done to where the current story is, um, and I don't know, that's just really interesting, and it sounds maybe funky it's fun to write a character in that situation how how you would react and you give each one of them a different point of view on how they react that's different than yours and it's just a fun um creative exploration and i guess i'm just dark so that's why they end up dark (laughs) but it's it's a really great movie i I can't wait for folks in the audience to get around to seeing it just a really compelling ministry and you had a lot of great performers in that one uh, as well you've had a a pretty great degree of success but it sounds like a lot of these ideas you have are still very personal to you and and things you want to write about Mm -hmm. so i'm interested to hear like whenever you are pitching a studio or whenever you're trying to get a passion project made or whenever you say i have a take on a script treatment for the sense of Rain Lightning, for instance, how are you able to meet halfway or make sure that your vision gets through to the studios in a way that they're going to be satisfied with or be interested to at least perk an open ear to? Oh, yeah, the studios don't give a shit about the films that we made. <laughs> no, they are, they are just uh, elevated versions of indies. I never got a chance to really pitch studios. It's really pitching actors and agents. Um, and you'll find that if there's not a lot of dollar signs after the offer, you're actually avoiding the agents and you're trying to get to the actors. 
Now, I can't answer the question because thankfully, thankful to the, to the films that we've made, we have had opportunities to pitch stories to studios. We have had opportunities to um, meet with um, production companies that have studio deals. Um, and it's really sad. They don't... It's about an idea that the characters are eliminated from it. It is about um, an idea that can be sold in one minute that's going, you know, it's just a completely different thing. So the doors are open to us because of the character building and the character development we've done in our films and our scripts, right? Like, they're like, oh, you know, we loved your movie, we loved your movie. And we've written an action film that we thought was more studio-friendly, and even that, they were like, oh, that's only like a 15 or $20, $20 million movie. We need like a $50 million movie. And it, they don't care about the characters, they care about the concept. But because of the other samples, they believe that we can write solid characters. So that's helped from that side of things. But it's really about the big idea, and it really is as cheesy as any television show as you've seen it portrayed you know it's like so um, I don't know Godzilla and it's Godzilla meets you know um oh Billy Elliot (laughs) (laughs) yes I see it so does that so does Godzilla want to be a ballet dancer yes and uh Uh, but the problem is when he does it he destroys cities so he's really just misunderstood So at what point does Billy and Godzilla meet up with King Kong for the uh, expanded universe that the studios all want you to make, right? Um, yeah, no, I do. I did have a, ta- I have a tagline for it now because that's another thing. They're like, what's the tagline for it? Dance, Godzilla! Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, when the kids run down the street, they're like, dance, Billy! Dance, Godzilla. You heard it here. I don't know who, Warner Brothers, whoever owns the rights of Godzilla. So we do want to open up the floor to audience uh, questions and answers. You guys have any questions for Casey Twinter? Yes. And um, the once procedure or something. Like, like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, sorry. I get going. Um, yeah, the movie once it came out, it was made for two hundred thousand um, dollars. They, when they decided to make it, the filmmaker and writer knew the lead singer of an Irish band called The Frames. The Frames had modest success in Ireland and had some hits in overseas, you know, and uh, so they made this film about a, a, a musician to, to basically their buskers. They're, they're on the streets, and um, it's kind of a love story uh, with music at the heart of it. So when we came up with the idea of Rudderless, we had uh, Ben Queller for Quentin who was ultimately played by Anton Yelchin and we had at first we had the lead singer of the replacements Paul Westerberg and then after that we had the lead singer of a band called Cracker uh, David Lowry that was going to play the dad role and we were going to make it for about $500,000 we had some other great character actors and we just couldn't get the money for it so that was the first time it fell apart and then but thankfully through the through the putting that together some agents had read the script and I was kind of emboldened, and that's when we reached out to William H. Macy, and I had read an article that he wanted to direct, so we offered it to him as a directorial job, and uh, he read the script and was interested, and yeah. So the once model, which was the make it really cheap with rock stars that would bring an audience, went to have William H. Macy direct as his debut, and that would hopefully bring audiences, so... Had a, I mean, a great and had great supporting cast too. You had William H. Nacy as the director, and Billy Crudup, Anton Yelkin. Uh, yeah, there's a great, great yeah, cast in that uh, film. Selena Gomez, um, Felicity Huffman, Lawrence Fishburne, 
All really cool people. Um, they're amazing to work with. We've been lucky. We've made four films in a web series and have only worked with one douchey actor. Nice. Great track record. Uh, any I other questions? Who. Uh, for Casey, anyone? Yes, in the back. Excuse me? <laughs> Question was, what was the first film uh, that Casey worked on? Okay, so you can say that I'm a jump into the deep end of the pool guy. I'm kind of like, come up with a plan and don't really, don't really listen to the naysayers because you'll get a lot of them. Uh, so the first film I worked on was The Jogger, which we wrote, produced, and uh, directed. So we walked on, the first time I was on a film set was the first day we were shooting. And Nathan, Nathan Gardaki, he's the UPM on all, of our, on all of our films back here. He was also the first AD on our film. And I'd done commercials and things like that, so I kind of knew enough to be dangerous. Um, but I had never directed a commercial. I just had written them and, and um, helped produce them. First day, we're shooting a scene in the garage of my house. And I'm like, we, we had done all this prep work and all of this different stuff and had to try to think of everything. We're, like, ready to shoot. The actor's there. And it's, you know, he was on Friday Night Lights, and he's done a lot of different stuff. And I'm like, do the directors really call action? Like, <laughs> he's, la- he's laughing because he knows. And it's true. I did, right? <laughs> He's like, well, you know, he's like, because I've been on commercials where sometimes the first AD does, sometimes the director does, but rarely is it the way it's done in film. Rarely is it's like, action, because the word action is just such a, and, and this is on scent, we had a, we had a director, um, great, great director, Blake Robbins. It's true, the word action is like, it's a butthole pucker moment, okay? <laughs> no, I mean, there's just no way to, there's no way, there's no other way to put it, right? If you're an actor... If you're an actor, as comfortable as you are with all of these people around you and a camera on you, when you say action, there is a moment where you, where you just like... You snap know, into place. Snap too, you know, you become... Or whatever. Um, so like on, in a, on Scent of Rain and Lightning, our director never called action. He did a... He, he, would, he would talk with the actors, he would get them in a place, and then he would basically lean over and, and you know, they would roll sound first and then they would basically get the camera going and then they would ease into the scene because he that's how much of a moment he felt felt that it was but you know for our film jogger when i asked he was like well the first ad can do it and it's kind of more of just letting the crew know that it's time and it's like so you'd call you know you'd speed and action um but yeah so that was the first time i was on a set was i was directing a film way to, way to get started yeah. <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i recommend it or not i don't you know <laughs> we have uh, any, uh, any other questions yes Yes, you. If for a starting writer, what would you recommend as like a tip just getting out of your head on the paper? Okay, I have lots of knowledge that is either helpful or worthless. You, you go. This is like this is um, this was my road in teaching myself to write because I did not go to film school. I went to school for graphic design. Um, so I read a lot. That's an important thing. Number two, I wrote a feature and then realized very quickly through some reading of some online 
some writers' blogs that short films have the same arcs, the same they have the same structure as a feature, and you can do them in 15, 20 pages. So my recommendation to you is write a shitload of shorts. Write them and write them and write them. Figure out how to write character. Figure out how to make a story that has um, the ups, the downs, and um, is compelling, and it drives itself through. So write short films. Write them and write them and write them. Because I thought my first feature was amazing, and it was horrible, okay? <laughs> I think my... I thought the next two or three I wrote were great, and those were horrible. Um but I cut my teeth on shorts. Um, in terms of getting ideas down on paper, uh, I don't like to outline. I mean, I do. I like the theory of it, but we write treatments. We've always written treatments, um, and they're basically 10-page short stories. Uh, I use the hell out of my phone and my email to write ideas, and I email them to myself, and um, I put them... I put a subject line and then I just save them in folders. That's the way I write outlines and things like that. I'm always writing and I actually number the ideas. So if I have an idea, I email it to myself in the phone. I'm up to idea 270 something. So then if I want to search back, I try, I search by the numbers. <laughs> um, I don't know. It works for me. Yeah, there's that. I, I learned very early in having a writing partner. Whenever we talk through ideas, the next thing, within the 24 hours, you have to shoot an email that covers what you talked about or you'll lose it. Then you have to force yourself to write. I write two and a half hours every single day. Uh, I work a nine to five when I get home and after my kid goes to bed and after my wife goes to bed, I write from 10 to 12 every night, sometimes one. If I'm really rolling, it'll go to two in the morning. And that's that's my model because... I still haven't made shit for money in film, so you know, I, hope, I hope that's not a dream killer or anything like that. I mean, we have made some money, but still, that's why I say I'm an aspiring filmmaker, because I'm not getting paid to make films every day. You know, I don't sit around and you know, just wait for my agent to call or have conversations with my agent and then work on stuff. I'm working on it between my 9 to 5 still. Every, everybody, I've found everybody's story is completely different. I have friends in L.A. that have written 10 scripts and not a single one's been made, but they're making like $100,000 per script. They're studio writers. Actually, one of them just did get made. It was, um, oh, he wrote Machete 2. Machete. Machete 2. And he wrote um, The Last Underworld, and he came in and did a character pass on John Wick 2. And he said that Keanu Reeves is cool as hell. <laughs> But is very high maintenance when you're doing writing his character. He has lots of notes about every scene and every single word. You just don't kill the guy's dog. I thought that was the only real note that mattered. (laughs) Apparently in the second film, that was just, I mean, there wasn't even that much story to it, as far as I know. Everyone who's homeless has a gun. That's all you need to know. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the writer-producer of Rudderless and the Sense of Rain and Lining, Casey Twitter. Casey, thank you so much for joining us tonight. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Casey Twincher and you want to hear him tell the absolute best Lawrence Fishburne story you've ever heard, make sure to subscribe to the Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any application of your choice. That way you can get the whole conversation, including a couple of great stories from 
Casey's experience on the set of Rudderless and The Scent of Rain and Lightning. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was co-hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. The Silver Screen Soliloquy was co-hosted by Laron Chapman. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexandra Bohannon. And special thanks to this month's guest, Casey Twinter. Hear the extended versions of today's segments by subscribing to The Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast app of your choice. Lastly, follow all of the updates for The Cinematic Schematic by liking The Cinematropolis on Facebook or following us on Twitter and Instagram at The Cinematrop. We'll see you again at the same time next month.